Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We've been going through the book of Philippians. We're still in the first chapter, coming to the, towards the end of the first chapter. Paul has, is an extraordinary man. We've seen this because we got done with Acts, and we saw a lot about Paul and his example in Acts, and now we're getting to feel for his love for his, the believers in Philippi. And he's an extraordinary man with incredible courage and boldness and love that I find intimidating. As I compare myself with him, and I go through his words and his thoughts, and I get a feel better feel day by day of his heart, and his love for the Lord and his love for other people, he's an intimidating man with an intimidating boldness and love and courage. Well, Paul wants us to be like him. He's going to say later in this letter that we should imitate him. And here in this passage, he is going to give us one of the, the, he's going to summarize his entire worldview and show us the engine that's driving this machine that is the Apostle Paul. Every one of us has a thing inside us, a worldview, a philosophy, a grid through which we process everything, and it makes all the difference. It informs who we are, what we think, how we act. Paul has one, and he's going to put it out there. He's going to articulate it so that we can see it and so that we can imitate it. We can adopt it as our own. He wants you and me to have what he has as his philosophy for life. And he's going to give that to us here. He's been telling his friends in Philippi in the previous verses what his perspective is on his present circumstance of imprisonment. And now he turns his attention to the future, to his upcoming trial before the infamous Roman Emperor Nero. That'd be an intimidating situation to have coming at you. Paul's got that ahead, and he's saying that he's going to tell the people what he makes of that. The outcome of that trial is very uncertain. It has, nobody could tell what's going to happen. It could result in his acquittal and his release, or it could result in his conviction and execution. Who could say? Paul, in a very memorable passage of the New Testament here, is going to contemplate both possibilities out loud for the benefit of of his friends and for us. And in so doing, he gives us his great maxim, his great paradigm for life, which is to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the gear that all of Paul's life turns around. It's like the, the little focusing knob on the binoculars that, uh, you know, and you're looking out across the field at the deer, and at first it's completely blurry, but you adjust the little dial in the middle to a certain point, and then boom, perfect clarity. If you want to see the world as the Apostle Paul sees it, then to live as Christ and to die as gain is where you set the dial. Let's see what he has to say to us this morning from his letter to the Philippians, which is God's word, and it is eternally true. Starting in the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the first thing we see in this marvelous passage is that Paul is looking forward to this trial ahead of him with expectant and confident joy which is extraordinary. Anybody ever been to court before? I have, even just as an attendee in the gallery, it's an intimidating situation. If you've ever had to be on the witness stand, if you've ever had to be the defendant in court, and you know it's stressful. It's not a situation you look forward to, but Paul seems to with joy and optimism. And that seems to be grounded in his certainty of a good outcome. Let's see what that good outcome that he has in view actually is. He talks about possessing knowledge of a good result. In verse 19, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And he speaks of that deliverance as if it had been vouchsafed to him. That's an old word, which means you've received this certainty from on high. That's sort of the terms that Paul is speaking of. He talks about how he knows that this this good outcome, this deliverance is going to come to him through the prayers of the Philippians. He knows that they're praying for him, and that's a sign to him, in his understanding, that God intends something good out of the situation. And he says also, through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I have that Spirit within me. He's given as a pledge of salvation, and I trust that his presence with me is going to, is an assurance, a sign of a good result that God has in this situation. Paul is so sure of a good outcome that he is willing to admit to having his heart set on it. We like to hedge our bets when we're hoping for something good. We don't like to be too vocal about it because then we, it's our way of protecting ourselves. We don't want to be embarrassed if things didn't turn out like we hoped. and We don't want our hopes really to be dashed. We protect ourselves. But Paul's not. He just comes out and he says, I think this is going to happen in accordance with your prayers and and through your prayers and through the provision of God's spirit, just like I've fully expected and been hoping that it would. He says in verse 20, according to my own earnest expectation and hope. So I have joy, says Paul, because I know that all of this is going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and God's spirit, just as I myself have been earnestly, expectantly hoping that it would. But what exactly is Paul joyfully, confidently hoping is going to be the good outcome from this situation? If it were you and me, we would be hoping for acquittal and release and more life to go on living. But that's actually not what Paul has his heart set on. This is one of the longest, most complicated sentences that Paul ever wrote. And he wrote some doozies. So it would we would be forgiven if we thought, as we've been reading along, that he's talking about his acquittal. But he's not. 
We know this because if you go to the end of this long sentence, he closes it with this. Verse 20, whether by life or by death. So whatever this good outcome that Paul has in view of this upcoming trial is equally true, whether he lives or dies. So what is it? We take that interpretive key and we read back into the text and we see this. Right, right in the middle, this is what Paul has his hope set on. These words in verse 20. That I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's my goal. That's my aim. That's the outcome that I am confident and assured of in this instance. Here's what I think Paul is saying. The really crucial thing for me is not whether I live or die, but that I avoid bringing dishonor to the Lord Jesus Christ through cowardice. My aim with this upcoming trial, and I am fully and joyfully expecting to achieve it because of your prayers and because of the Holy Spirit within me, is to testify so boldly of Jesus Christ before Caesar that whatever the outcome I come away with nothing to be ashamed of. I've put it all, I've left it all on the field. I've said everything that there was to say. I've held nothing back out of fear for myself or out of desire for my own preservation. And you know what? Not only am I assured that I'm going to be able to do that, I'm looking forward to getting to do it. Now that's a pretty amazing outlook on an upcoming very stressful situation. And I find it, this is one of the things about the Apostle Paul I find personally very hard to relate to. This man is amazing in his zeal for the Lord, in his courage, in his faithful outlook. Paul says this, he testifies to this, he tells everybody in Philippi that this is his outlook because he wants it to be our outlook on our situations and circumstances. He wants us to see opportunities to tell others about Jesus as something we look forward to getting to do. And we're not, a, we're not afraid of the outcome or the reaction or the rejection or whatever might come from it because this is our joy. And so he goes on next to tell the Philippians where that comes from in him. And it comes from a paradigm. It comes from a paradigm that he puts in a maxim. You know that word maxim? Like a little saying that encompasses or encapsulates a lot of truth and communicates it really simply. Paul gives us a maxim where he takes actually his whole worldview, a biblical worldview, and he smashes it down into a little statement which encapsulates a whole philosophy that he has, which he has so adopted and believes and, and operates out of that it affects his whole life and it gives him his boldness and his love and his whole drive and ambition. And he's going to go on to give it to us and he's also going to tell us about what you might call the win-win dilemma that it presents for him under these circumstances. But I'm like, I'm like to call, um, I prefer to call the win-big, win-bigger dilemma that it presents to him. Let's look at it together. That's in verses 21 to 24. Here's Paul's paradigm. Everything he's been saying up so far flows out of this philosophy that he has for himself. 
For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's an entire world of biblical truth personally owned in, in, in that, beautifully, that beautiful expression and saying of Paul's. It's even more striking and memorable in the Greek. Unfortunately, a lot of the poetry of it gets lost in translation. There's alliteration and assonance, which makes it even more punchy and memorable. I can give you the sense of it, though. To live, Christos, Christ. To die, Kerdas. Very memorable statement. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Any philosophy that's worth its salt grapples with those two basic questions. What is the meaning of life? What's it all about? What should I pursue? And what is my relationship to death? That's what any good philosophy is really grappling with. You and I have a philosophy. Every human being alive has a philosophy. They have an understanding it could be immature, it could be undeveloped, it could be highly developed. Uh, but they have an understanding of what life is about, what they are pursuing in it, and also what death means and what their relationship is to it. Everybody's got one of these things. It could be in the form of an articulated creed. We said a creed earlier, I believe in God Almighty. God the Father Almighty, heaven, maker of heaven and earth. That's a creed. We could have a creed. It could be on the level of assumption deep in our heart. It could be something we, don't even, we couldn't even verbalize if we were asked about it. But everybody's got one. They might not have that creed, but everybody's got this assumption level philosophy which tells them what the purpose of life is and what they should pursue and why and what death means and what their relationship is to it. Everybody's got one of these. Paul gives us his. What's yours? Now, I'm not so much asking what the Sunday school answer is, what the Sunday morning church answer is. I'm looking for that assumption level philosophy. If, if you were to honestly be able to look at yourself and acknowledge what it is you're after in life, that's what I want you to consider this morning. To me, to live is what? To me, to live is what? The pursuit of pleasure? Entertainment? Games? Play? Enjoyment? Is that what life is about? Seeking adventure? I want to I get around. I want to see it all. I want a taste of everything. For to me, to live is expressing myself. A lot of people, that's the point of existence, is to creatively express themselves. Some people, it's to protect themselves. I've been hurt. I don't want to get hurt again. The whole point of my existence is to protect myself from further hurt. That's how I make all my decisions. That's how I set up my entire life, to try to not be hurt like that ever again. Is life about trying to rid yourself of a guilty conscience? I need to do some good to add to the pile so that the bad doesn't outweigh the good at the end of the day? 
to be in control, to gain the upper hand, to be liked and well thought of by everybody. Everybody's got some answer to this question. What is life about? What, is my, what am I pursuing most out of life? You can say one thing, but I'm asking what is really going on in your heart? What's driving you? What's the engine that's turning the crank and driving the car down the road of your life? What are you about? What are you after? Inseparable from that question is this. What is your view of death, relationship to death? Death is coming for all of us. And we all kind of know it. We know it's inescapable and unavoidable. It's coming. And all of us have to grapple with that. And we grapple with it in different ways. For some of us, it's the buzzer at the end of the game, which stops play. And so we need to get all that we have to get in, we got to get it in now. So it drives us to seek pleasure, seek adventure, seek whatever it is, here and now. For some people, they've adopted a philosophical understanding of death, which tells them it is non-existence. So we are existing now, maybe, but when we die, we go into nothingness. We just do not exist then. And so that tells me, that informs my life that there's no real, it doesn't really matters. There's no moral consequences to anything. There's, you know, it's, I, it's just sort of a whatever about life. For a lot of people, though, most people, death is just something we try not to think about because it's troubling. It fills us with a sense of dread. It represents accountability. It represents hell. And we don't like to think about it. And so it's something that we try to stave off in our thinking any way we can, try to ignore. Or we try to keep and prevent as long as we can from happening by obsessing about our health, by obsessing about safety, hanging on to people and things to give ourselves a sense of permanence. What is your view in relationship to death? Well, Paul's maxim shows us his relationship both to life and to death, his philosophy. To live is Christ. To die is gain. When Paul says to live is Christ, he is saying so much. We could, we could get lost here for 10 hours trying to import and open up all the things that Paul is summarizing in those simple words. To live is Christ. What is he saying? Christ is his savior. He saved him from his sins. He says in Titus 3, he saved us, Jesus did. Not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. I've come to know his mercy as my savior and the forgiveness of my sins. He is Paul's hope of eternal life. Just as sin reigned in death, he writes in Romans, so grace has reigned through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was Christ's, or he was Paul's Lord, his king. He, he refers to him as the only sovereign, the only king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He was Paul's wisdom. In Christ himself are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says Paul. And I have come to know that wisdom 
for myself as I have come to know him. He was Paul's whole identity. He says this to the Colossians, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Whoever you were is over, dead. And whoever you are now is hidden with Christ in God. Your identity is wrapped up in his identity. He was Paul's entire sense of self-worth. This is a big one. A lot of people are looking, striving desperately for some sense of worth. And here's what Paul found. He found it in Jesus. He says, so that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. My worth doesn't come from myself. It comes from Jesus. He was Paul's boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He was Paul's aim and ambition. Therefore, he says in 2 Corinthians, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's my entire ambition, is to please the Lord. He was Paul's rewarder and judge. Paul says, in the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. We could go on and on and on. This is what, some of what Paul means when he's talking about his life. And life is Christ. For me to live is Christ. He is my everything. He is my entire hope. We saw this beautifully expressed by the psalmist. It was the psalmist's hope. In our reading this morning, Psalm 73, I'll remind you of what he says. Who have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Isn't that beautiful? He's just saying what Paul is saying. To live is Christ. I desire nothing but him. He's my whole scope, my whole ambition, my whole drive, my whole, the summation of all my hopes, all my aims. They all point, refer to him. They're built on him. Paul was ready to give up anything, anything, if it meant gaining more of Jesus or getting closer to his goal of obtaining his, his prize, which was Jesus Christ, including his own life. He wouldn't hesitate to lay it down if it meant obtaining the prize of closeness to Jesus, life with Jesus. So death was not scary to Paul. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, had taken the sting out of death for Paul. Satan is described in the book of Hebrews as this like cruel taskmaster who holds people, men, under the bondage of fear, the fear of death. And Jesus, in that same passage, is described as the great liberator from this awful oppressive fear, this fear of death. He says, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, Jesus partook of flesh, of blood, flesh and blood. He became man. That through death, 
he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Wouldn't that be a wonderful experience to be freed from the fear of death? Paul had experienced that liberty, that freedom. It's, it's, it's evident in all through Acts, and it's evident in this, this testimony as he looks with joy and anticipation and, um, at this very uncertain future. He doesn't have the fear of death. There's no other way to be bold like Paul than to share in that same liberty from the captivity of the fear of death. Paul had received that liberty. But more than that, he saw in death actual gain for himself. He was not, just only, he was only, not only just not afraid of it, he saw in it opportunity for gain. He understood death for himself, a repentant, believing Christian, to result in an immediate translation into the glorious presence of the Lord. An entrance into glory and into his promised reward, the essence of which was proximity and life with Jesus. That's the gain that he saw in death. Since, that, since Jesus was the aim of Paul's life, death meant the obtaining of his ultimate ambition to be with his Savior. Serious question. If this is how Paul thought about death, that it's gain and an immediate translation into the presence of the Lord and into eternal bliss and satisfaction and happiness, why would he not immediately off himself? Lots of people do kill themselves because presumably they assume anything's got to be better than this. That death is in some way gain to them. That's, there's no other rationale for suicide than that. That this is so bad. What I'm going through and experiencing is so bad. That has to be better. It's, it has to, it represents relief. I believe that. Otherwise, I would not kill myself. To see death as gain does not mean Paul would in any way have any sympathy for so-called victims of suicide. Isn't it interesting how we refer to these things today? Victims of suicide. To take one's own life is to murder somebody, yourself. It is a crime. It is a moral crime before God. Thou shalt not murder. They're not victims of suicide. They're perpetrators of suicide against themselves. To live by faith requires that we entrust our sorrows and our hurts to the Lord Jesus Christ and every moment of our life, whatever experience of it there is to his care and will. G.K. Chesterton puts suicide like this very strongly. The man who kills a man, kills a man. The man who kills himself, kills all men. 
far as he's concerned, he wipes out the world. I've experienced personally in my life, I know many faithful, godly people here have experienced in their life, times of darkness and sorrow. We know some of the dark places, depressing places, that our feelings and our circumstances can take us. If you have been thinking about hurting yourself, harming yourself, don't leave today without talking to us. We want to lead you to the hope that there is and the healing that there is in Jesus Christ. And there is hope and healing in him. But Paul has experienced that hope. And it's that hope which gives him this incredible boldness as he faces the future and the scary thing that we're all afraid of, which is death. He's not afraid of it because it represents to him something so sweet and so good. He's entrusted every moment of his life and his whole soul to the care of the Lord Jesus, the good, faithful, safekeeping of God. And all of his hope is based there. And he has such a confidence that when he dies, however he dies, it will result in his gain and the gaining of his prize that he's able to face down the scariest circumstance. This is the greatest, highest court in the world. And he's on the chopping block. And he's got to say something for himself. And he's confident that God's going to help him in that situation because of his paradigm. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Those are the twin pillars of Paul's entire worldview and the source of his incredible courage and tenacity as an evangelist and defender of the faith. Now, these two pillars of Paul's philosophy present him with a really interesting dilemma as he looks towards these circumstances ahead of him, this trial. And we see that in, in verses 22 to 23. Paul says, But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but... I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. That is very much better, he says. I call that Paul's win-big-win-bigger dilemma. On the one hand, there's the prospect of life and the freedom that that entails in his view of things, to live as Christ. So Paul's aim is, is to advance Christ, to seek Christ, to pursue Christ, to bear fruit for Christ. And in keeping with that purpose, living on in the flesh means more fruitful labor for Christ. And he sees that, he sees the appeal of that for himself. That's what that would mean. I find that appealing. More fruitful labor. Who likes unfruitful labor? (laughs) Nobody. But when you're really in the groove and you're really producing, that feels good. Paul gets to feel that for Jesus Christ. There's advantage in that for him. On the other hand, there's execution and death and the significance of that in Paul's view of things. As he summarizes it, to die is gain. So death is not the end for Paul. It's the realization of all his hopes. It means departing to be with Christ, which he says is very much better. So my big promotion, win bigger. So his maxim allows him to see the advantages of both of these outcomes. He's spoiled for choice. Choice is an interesting word. Makes us think, 
does Paul have power over the outcome? Does he have his hand on the lever of God's will? No. What he really is saying is not choice like I have power over this, but he's t- what, which preference should I choose? Which one of these possible outcomes should I choose to prefer for myself? I see the advantages of both, and I'm hard-pressed from both directions. But then comes in a new consideration into, the, into his view in verse 24, and it tips the scales in a particular direction for him. And he says this, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I see the advantages to me in either direction, and I know which one I prefer for myself, and yet I know which one is better for you. So it comes down to Paul, for Paul, to what is more necessary for other people. Is it best, more necessary, that I get my big promotion now? Or that the Philippians receive the benefit of my continued friendship and ministry? And Paul's heart knows the answer. He's heard reports from Epaphroditus, their their faithful man that they sent to encourage Paul, about how things are going with them. He knows the ins and outs of the church. He's heard the report. And he knows they need some help. They need some encouragement. And his heart goes out to them. And he believes he reads into his knowledge of their circumstances God's will for his outcome of the trial. He says this in verse 25. Convinced of this, that you guys need me. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. In these final couple of verses, Paul anticipates an an acquittal verdict out of this trial because of the good that he believes God intends in that for his friends in Philippi. When Paul says to live is Christ, he does not have in view this me and Jesus mentality. (laughs) A lot of people read the scriptures this way. Paul never just sees him in Jesus. It's always more than that. Paul's ironclad commitment to Jesus includes, by, of necessity, by extension, an equally strong commitment to Christ's people, the church. Whatever serves the interests of one serves the interests of all. His interests, their interests, Christ's interests are all entangled together. They're mutually dependent And that's how Paul processes. That's part of his worldview. Gospel relationships, which Philippians is all about. Gospel friendship, gospel uh, apostleship and its relationship to a church. It's all about this. Gospel established, formed relationships. Gospel relationships are not like vertical only, and they're not horizontal only. They're triangular. There's three parties in them. There's not just me. There's not just me and Jesus. There's not just you and me. There is always in view you and me and Jesus, or Jesus and you and me. Whichever way you look at it, there's always those three parties. 
That's because we are a body. Jesus is the head. His church is the body. We are all members of one another together. That's how gospel relationships work. So Paul's maxim is not only the source of his boldness, it's also the source of his love. To live sacrificially for Jesus is to live sacrificially for others and vice versa. To live as Christ is to live for his people. And that presents a dilemma for Paul. An interesting one. As Paul ponders in the spirit the needs of the Philippians, he's convinced out of love and sympathy that God is going to send him back to the fields of service for some years to come. And he's willing to set aside his own desires for himself in order to further assist others in their own progress towards glory. I'm reminded of these beautiful verses from Romans, which we often print on our bulletins when we have a funeral service for a godly brother and sister who dies in the Lord. These are so beautiful. Romans 14, 7 and 8. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's amazing. <laughs> Only the gospel can produce such a vision and for the meaning of life and the fear of death and the togetherness of God's people and bring it together into verses and words like that. <laughs> Those are amazing words, the likes of which the world has not known before. Not one of us lives for himself nor dies for himself. Paul's living for Jesus meant that dying for him was not a frightening prospect but even better than living. And from that perspective, that paradigm flowed Paul's freedom to live cheerfully, boldly, sacrificially for Jesus and others, even in the midst of great difficulty personally. What are you living for? What is your life about? What is your reason to live? To live is Christ was not just Paul's reason. It's not just a good reason. It's not just one to consider and commendable. It is the reason. It is the only reason that is worthy. Every other reason, however you fill in the blank, there could be lots of good things. But if they replace the centrality of Jesus Christ, and if everything else isn't subordinate to him, it's disobedience. It's idolatry. It's rebellion against God. So it really matters how you fill in the blank. To live, for to me, to live is what that next word is, not just in creed form, but in real form, heart form, really matters. Eternally matters. Find your life and identity and purpose in Jesus. And you will find your life. 
Listen to the words of Jesus. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is not just talking about martyrdom, laying down your life in a glorious way for the Lord Jesus. He's talking about changing your paradigm. Whoever will set aside his ambitions and take up my ambitions for him, whoever will set aside this or that pursuit that has driven him thus far and take on my pursuits for himself and pursue me will find life. Jesus is life. He's the source of life. Are you pursuing him? Is that your outlook, your ambition, the summation of your entire inner philosophy? For to me, to live is, to die is, if you want to be able to put Paul's answers in for yourself, what do you do? Where do you go? Jesus is a person. And you can talk to him. And you can ask him to make it so. You can say, Lord Jesus, I see that up until now, everything I've been pursuing is vain. And worse than vain, idolatry and false worship. Forgive me for that. And in place of that pursuit... I want you. Would you make yourself known to me? Would you imprint yourself on my heart and mind? Would you make me to be able to say truthfully, really, like Paul said, with full consistency with how I live and the decisions I make, to live for me is Christ. Would you do that for me, Jesus Lord? He, as the Lord, has entirely the power to do that, to grant you your request. And indeed, desires to. So come and talk to him about it. If you have talked to him about that, and you, have, you can recognize in yourself a certain truthfulness to the saying, to me, for to me to live is Christ, but yet see that there's a lot of unbelief and a lot of that competes for that love and that pursuit in your life, which is most Christian people who have not died. <laughs> All Christian people who have not died and been glorified have some degree of mixed motives and competition for their desires and their ambitions and their drive in their life that they're constantly fighting against. And sometimes the bad desires win out over the good ones. Jesus is a person. You can talk to him about it. Go to him and ask him to help you. Repent and ask his forgiveness for what you see in yourself that is corrupt and vain and contrary to his will. And he will change you. He, as the Lord, has the power to do it. Do you want him to? Do you want the answer to be, for to me, to live is Christ?
Do you want to look at death and say, oh, I'm not afraid of that? For to me, death has gain. The fruit of that is boldness and love and freedom to actually live, to actually bear fruit, to actually have hope and joy. And so may God grant us that desire truly from our hearts to have that answer be Christ and gain. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word. And we pray that it would become true for all of us that life is about Jesus and death is about getting to him. And that you would so write this into our DNA, our outlook, our philosophy, and print it on our hearts that it just becomes natural to operate out of it as we encounter difficult circumstances, as we look to the future and the uncertainties of it, as we look at death, which is coming for us all. We pray that we would approach these things and all the many decisions of our lives out of this kind of faith, the same faith as Paul. Would you work it in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.